All right, well, hello, High Point family. Hey, listen, if you're new here today, uh, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at the church. And so if you're tuning in for the first time today, we are so uh, glad you are here. Um, I'm kind of recouping emotionally from that baptism. I got a little bit teary-eyed there, um, just that beautiful uh, picture of Father's Day and the true father that we have in heaven. And so just glorifying God for what just happened here um, in our service. So if you're new here, like I said, we're so glad that you're here. And I, I, feel, I feel like you picked a perfect Sunday uh, to tune in. Um, and we're glad that you are here. Happy Father's Day to you. So I want to begin by saying hello to you. I also want to say hello to our church uh, at home groups. Uh, we are grateful for each and every one of you. And I pray that today would be a wonderful day of food and fellowship and faith and that it will just be a great conversation. I'm looking forward to the topic that we're going to be addressing today. And I hope that it results um, in great conversation around your tables or around the living rooms or outside in the backyard. Now, today we are in the second week of our several week series um, entitled Habitology. Habitology. Now, the reason why we made up a word, Habitology, is because what we're doing in this series is we are studying habits. We are studying habits. We are looking at habits through the lens of Scripture. We are looking at habits through the lens of the gospel. And today we are starting with the first habit, which is the habit of rest. Yes, you heard me right. We are starting this series with the first habit, which is the habit of rest. Now, you might be thinking, wait a second, hold on, hold on. The habit of rest? What? I didn't even know that rest was a habit. I thought we were doing this series so that we can focus on results, not on rest. But what we're going to discover and what's so counterintuitive about the gospel is in every other worldview, the results come before the rest. But in the gospel... The rest comes before the results. And so maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, why are we doing uh, the first habit on rest? And especially now, right? Some of you are thinking, well, hold on. I've been in quarantine for the past four months. The last thing I need right now is rest. I have gotten plenty of rest. But here's the thing. Don't ever confuse a break in your schedule with rest in your soul. Those are two very different things, right? An external break in your schedule is very different from internal rest in your soul. Here's what I would say. Oftentimes, I would argue that oftentimes the most overlooked and ignored habit in the world in general and the church in particular is the habit of rest. And so honestly, in light of the season that we find ourselves in, I can't think of a better habit to start with than the habit of rest. I can't think of a more timely and a more needed habit than the habit of rest. The great late British pastor, uh, Charles Spurgeon, here's what he says. He says, rest time is not waste time. It is economy to gather fresh strength. In the long run, we shall do more by sometimes doing less, by sometimes doing less. And so today we are going to be addressing and unpacking the habit of rest. Now, uh, our passage today comes to us from the New Testament, and we are going to be in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Matthew Chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV. This is Jesus speaking. And here's what it says. It says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find 
rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the word of the Lord. So today, as we jump into this passage, here's what I want you to know about this passage. This passage is unique in the sense that on the one hand, this passage is incredibly familiar. And yet at the very same time, on the other hand, it is incredibly foreign. It is familiar and foreign at the same time. Here's what I mean. This passage is familiar because many of us have heard this passage before, right? We've read it. We've studied it in a devotional. We might even have heard it preached in a sermon. So on the one hand, this passage is very familiar. But yet at the very same time, on the other hand, it is very foreign. And the reason why it's a very foreign passage is because many people don't actually fully understand what Jesus is saying here. So they've read it, they've heard it, but they don't actually fully understand it. So this passage is unique in that it's very familiar. And yet at the same time, it is very foreign. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so looking forward to studying it today. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage under two headings. We're going to begin today by looking at the inability to rest. And then after we look at the inability to rest, we are going to conclude by looking at the invitation to rest. So the inability to rest and the invitation to rest. So let's begin today by looking at the inability to rest. And I'm going to reread uh, verse 28 through 30. Here's what Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the, the, the first truth that we are going to look at today is we are going to look at the inability to rest. So, so Jesus in this passage is talking to a very specific group of people. He is talking to people who are unable to rest. Now, the reason why we know that is because of three words that Jesus uses in the Greek language. And as we unpack these words, what we're going to discover is that the group of people who Jesus is talking to are people who are unable to rest. The first word that I want you to see here in the passage is the word labor. The word there in Greek, it literally means to work to the point of being tired, of being fatigued, or being completely exhausted. That's what the word there, labor, means in the Greek. So in other words, that, that word labor is describing not necessarily the act of working, but the effects of working. Not the act of labor, but the effects of labor. That's the first word I want you to see. The second word that I want to highlight here is where Jesus says, all who labor, and in the ESV it says, and are heavy laden. The, the word there, heavy laden, it's actually one word. In, in English it's two, but, but, it, but in, in Greek it's one word, and it literally means to be overfilled. It means to be weighed down. It literally means to be overstuffed, okay? And what I found fascinating is that the word picture in the Greek is of a ship that's over by the dock. And it's a ship that has so much cargo on it. It's been overfilled with cargo. And as a result of being weighed down by cargo, the ship can now no longer leave the dock. That's what the word there, heavy laden, means. And then the last word that Jesus uses that tips us off, that he's talking to people who are unable to rest, is the word rest. He says, I will give you rest. The fact that that's the solution that Jesus is offering implies that that's the problem people are struggling with. And so Jesus says, I will give you rest. And the word there, rest, it means, literally means in the Greek, to end an argument. It means to uh, command soldiers to stop fighting. It means to lay down a heavy burden or it means to cease your striving and your laboring. That's, that's what the word there rest means. So what we discover is that Jesus Christ is talking specifically to people who are weary, spiritually restless, spiritually exhausted, spiritually tired. So the question that many commentators ask is this, who is Jesus talking to in particular? Is, he, is, is, this, is this invitation to just a select few or is it to everyone? What I would argue in light of my reading is Jesus is making this invitation to everyone, but only a certain group of people will actually respond, okay? Now, here's the thing. I wanna make this crystal clear. 
the restlessness that Jesus is describing here, the, the weariness, the exhaustion that he's describing here is not a physical exhaustion. It's not an emotional uh, 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 exhaustion. It's not emotional weariness. It's not physical exhaustion. It's not a, 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 a mental thing. It's, it's spiritual. Jesus is talking to us specifically about a spiritual restlessness that every person on planet earth struggles with. Now, now, here's the thing about this restlessness though. Even though every single one of us struggles with it, it looks different from person to person. The, 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 it's the same uh, disease, it's the same struggle, but the symptoms look different from person to person. So John Bloom, who is uh, the co-founder of Desiring God with John Piper, he's this author. He has this quote and he talks to us about this, this deep soul weariness and tiredness and exhaustion that all of us struggle with. And here, here's what he says. He says, deep soul weariness. We all experience it, though in different ways and for different reasons. Sometimes we can point to a significant factor, but often we can't. Our weariness, listen to this, our weariness results from the cumulative multi-layered intersections of life's complexities, bodily frailties, emotional heartbreaks, and the consequences of sin. So, 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 Every person on planet earth with a pulse struggles with this emotional weariness, with this emotional, uh, sorry, with this spiritual weariness, with this spiritual restlessness. Every person on planet earth struggles with it. But here's the thing. It looks different from person to person. And so part of the reason why it's so hard to diagnose is because every person navigates it and tries to deal with it in a different way. So for example, some people try to deal with it by being workaholics. Some people try to mask it by being perfectionists. Some people attempt to deal with it by being uh, adventure junkies. Uh, some people try to deal with it by being moralistic and legalistic. Still other people try to deal with it by just ignoring it and becoming numb to it. And yet still other people, what they do is they become terrified of failure and addicted to success. See, all those symptoms are completely different, but they stem from the same problem. We all have this weariness, this tiredness, this, this exhaustion, this restlessness in our soul, in our soul, okay? Now, in this passage, Jesus brings up the concept of a yoke. And unless you grew up on a farm, you have no idea what Jesus is talking about, okay? But here's what a yoke is. A yoke in those days meant one of two things. The first thing that it meant is a yoke was a wooden beam that you would put over two animals of the same kind. So for example, it could be two donkeys or two oxen or two horses. And what you would do is this wooden beam would have these two metal harnesses that would come out the bottom of it. You would put their heads inside the harness and then the beam would lay on top of them. Then in the middle of this beam, there would be a latch and you would latch on a wagon or a cart and these animals would essentially drag that and pull that wagon and that cart around. That's what, that's what a yoke was. Hopefully in my description of it, you can see what I'm describing, right? That's the first picture of a yoke. But here's what the yoke also meant. A yoke in those days was not just the wooden beam that you put on animals to, to, carry, to, to carry and to pull around, but a yoke actually was if you were a teacher in those days, one of the things that was very common in Jerusalem was that there was rabbis, there was teachers. And, and if you were a student who wanted to follow a particular teacher, that process would be called you yoking yourself to that teacher. You would yoke yourself. You would put yourself under their yoke, under their life, under their teaching, under their lessons. And literally you would follow that person around until you became an expert in what they were teaching. So, so when we think about a student-teacher relationship, you either think about high school or you think about college, right? You, you, you're in a class Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you take a few credits and you're done. But in those days, for you to become a student and for someone to be your teacher, you would have to take their yoke upon you, upon, upon yourself, and then you would have to essentially drop everything else and follow this person for a season of your life to see how they talk, to see how they walk, to see what they teach. That's what a yoke was, which is funny because the word disciple in Greek is actually the word student. Okay, so, so when we learn 
Jesus later on talks about learning from me. The, the picture there is as disciples, we are yoking ourselves to Jesus. We're taking his yoke upon us and we now follow him as our rabbi and our teacher. So the word yoke was either a literal physical yoke, a wooden beam that you put on beasts of burden, or metaphorically, it was to take on someone's teaching, to take on someone's way of life. That's what the word there, yoke, means. So I bring that up because I need to transition here for something that if you don't understand what a yoke is, you're not going to understand what I say next, okay? Jesus in this passage is offering you a new yoke. Jesus is saying, here is my yoke. Put my yoke on you. But here's what a lot of people don't understand. This is part of the reason why people misunderstand this passage. Jesus is assuming that you already have a yoke on you, okay? So what Jesus is arguing is, here's my yoke because my yoke is better than whatever yoke you are currently under. In other words, the argument that Jesus is making is that every single human being is under a yoke. Every human being on planet earth is under a burden. You're either under Jesus' yoke and Jesus' burden, or you're under something significantly less. But every person is under a yoke. Jesus is assuming by offering you his yoke that you are currently under a yoke. Now, you may be sitting here today and you're still considering Christianity. You don't know if this whole thing is for you. Maybe you're agnostic or maybe you're atheist or maybe you're, you're you know, just figuring it out. But, but here's what I need you to know. You might be hearing this idea of a yoke and a burden and you're like, I don't want anyone's yoke. I don't want Jesus' burden on me. I, I am yokeless. According to Jesus, that is not a thing. Every person on planet earth is under a particular Yoke. I'll give you examples of yokes here in a second, but every person on planet earth is under a yoke. And, and, and since you are already yoked to something, that burden, that yoke is what's causing the spiritual restlessness and the spiritual exhaustion that you are feeling. Now, real quick, Christians, if you're sitting here and you're like, well, I already believe in Jesus, so I'm good. No, no, no. You actually can be a believer and have the wrong yoke on you. So this isn't just to non-Christians, this is to Christians. We are all yoked to something. And unfortunately, Christians are just as guilty as non-Christians of being yoked to the wrong thing. Okay? So, so, so that, whatever you're yoked to that is smaller than Jesus, that is inferior to Jesus, that is the thing that is causing your spiritual restlessness. It is the, that very thing that is causing your spiritual exhaustion. And like I said earlier, this is different from mental fatigue. This is different from emotional exhaustion. This is different from physical weariness. This is a spiritual restlessness. This is a spiritual fatigue. This is a spiritual sleeplessness at the soul level that every one of us is struggling with. It is, it is a restlessness of your heart. It is a restlessness of your soul. It is a restlessness of your conscience. One pastor who I really respect put it this way. He said, the soul is like a good night's sleep. No, they're really rested soul. It's like a good night's sleep. So you can sleep nine hours straight. But if in those nine hours, you don't have any REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement, you can wake up and be just as exhausted and just as weary and just as tired as you were before. Because nine hours of sleep without REM is not good sleep. You can try to rest all you want, but what your soul needs, it needs a REM sleep. And that can't be found horizontally. That's not found on this earth. It's only found vertically in God. And so because you have this restlessness of your soul, this restlessness of your heart, this restlessness of your, of your conscience, there's no sleep, there's no Sabbath, there's no sabbatical, there's no vacation, there's no seminar that can take it away. You can rest as much as you want, but it cannot take it away. I can tell you that in my own life, when I am physically tired, when I am spiritually exhausted, but my body's rested, I'm a shell of myself. But when I am spiritually rested and my body's exhausted, I'm good. I just need a nap. It is a drastically different thing. Jesus says that the rest that we need is a rest for our souls. And the only individual who can give you the REM sleep, the REM rest that your soul desperately needs is Jesus Christ and him alone. So you might be asking me, okay, 
For the sake of argument, Pastor Will, I'm going to give you that I have a yoke on me. I'm going to give you that I have a burden on me. What type of yoke, what type of burden can I be currently placing on myself? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to give you uh, several examples of different types of yokes and different types of burdens that we put on ourselves, both believers and non-believers. The first yoke, the, the first burden, and I would argue the most common, it's actually the one that Jesus is dealing with here in his day, the most common uh, and most, um, uh, most general yoke that we are tempted to put on ourselves is the yoke of religion. It is the yoke of the law, of the law. So here, let me give you some context. Back in the Old Testament, one of the things that people did to describe the law is they would literally describe the law as God's yoke. God would put his law on the Israelites and it was a yoke that the Israelites had to carry. Now, here's the thing. If you know anything about the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament is example after example of the Jewish people failing to carry the yoke. The burden is too heavy. The yoke, they can't carry it. They are crushed under it again and again and again. But here's what's fascinating. By the time Jesus comes on the scene to make matters worse, the Pharisees show up and the Pharisees, who were these religious leaders in Jesus' day, they say, you know what? God's law isn't enough. And so what we're going to do is we're going to add a bunch of additional man-made laws in addition to God's law because we're just not holy enough yet. We're not religious enough yet. So by the time Jesus Christ comes on the scene, the Israelites had already been struggling to obey God's law for, for centuries. By the time he shows up on the scene, these Pharisees, these religious men, had added even more to an already overwhelming, overbearing yoke, okay? So Jesus, in Matthew 23, he exposes the yoke of the Pharisees. He exposes this common yoke that every single one of us is tempted to put on, which is the yoke of religion, which is, which is the yoke of self-righteousness, which is the yoke of legalism, okay? Look what he says in Matthew 23, verses three and four. Jesus exposes this very common yoke. He says, the, scribe and the, Pharise the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses', Moses seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. So, so stop there for a second. Jesus is saying that not only can they not obey the original law, but then they can't even obey the laws that they've created in addition to it. They preach it, but they don't practice it. Then verse four, they tie up heavy burdens, same Greek word, hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So Jesus is exposing uh, the most common, the most foundational yoke that we are all tempted to put on ourselves. The, the, the yoke of self-righteousness, the yoke of self-salvation, the yoke of self-sufficiency. Then in Acts chapter 15, you have this very unique story because in the book of Acts, the first people who were saved were the Jewish people. But then later on in Acts, Moses preaches the gospel to a Gentile and all of a sudden Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people, start coming to know Jesus. So then you fast forward to Acts 15 and, Mo and Peter is sitting in front of the Jerusalem church who were all Jews. And he is explaining to them that these Gentiles who came to know Jesus cannot carry the burden of the law. Just like the Jews couldn't, neither can they. So, so look what uh, Peter says to this Jerusalem council. He says, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Now, stop there for a second. When, think about this. When we try to save ourselves, we are putting God to the test. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Moses says, what are we doing here, guys? Why in the world would we try to make the Gentiles obey the very law that we couldn't obey? Why would we make them try to carry the burden that we could not carry ourselves? And so the first most common yoke is the yoke of religion is the yoke of trying to save yourself, of trying to redeem yourself. Now, I'm going to give you a modern example. 
One of the uh, musicians, probably top five favorite musicians of mine, is, is a guy named Maris Yahoo. His full name is Matthew Paul Miller. And Mattis Yahoo, here's why I was just so attracted to him as far as his music goes pretty early on. He was a Jewish dude who did reggae music. And that was just fascinating to me. And his music was fire. It was so good, right? Well, here's what I didn't know. I I did some reading on Mattis Yahoo. Here's what I discovered. So he was born an ethnic Jew. But even though he was an ethnic Jew, he didn't practice the religion of Judaism. But then later on in life, when he was a young adult, probably even later than that, he decided that he was going to try Judaism. Not just, he, already, he was already ethnically Jew, but he was going to live out the Jewish religion. And out of all the sects of Judaism that he could have picked, he picked uh, um, uh, Hasidic Judaism, which is a very, very strict version of Judaism. And so for years, he was a Hasidic Jew. But then a few years ago, he walked away from his faith. He walked away from his religion. And on his blog, here's what he said about him walking away from the yoke of religion. He said, sorry, folks, all you get is me. No aliases. He says, when I started becoming religious, you could put that in quotes. When I started becoming religious 10 years ago, it was a very natural and organic process. It was my choice. My journey to discover my roots and explore Jewish spirituality, not through books, but through real life. At a certain point, I felt the need to submit to a higher level of religiosity. There's the word again. To move away from my intuition and to accept an ultimate truth. I felt that in order to become a good person, there it is. That's what we all want. That's the burden, right? That's that's where the yoke is. I want to be a good person in my own strength. I got to save myself. I got to earn God's love, God's favor. I got to do it. He says, in order to become a good person, I needed rules, lots of them, or else I would somehow fall apart. Then he talks about how he rejected it. And he says this, I am reclaiming myself, trusting my goodness and my divine mission. So, Matthew Paul Miller, Maris Yahoo, tried the yoke of religion. Now, what's fascinating is you would think that he walks away from religion, right? Because he's saying, now he's saying, I'm going to trust my own goodness. But really, that's just another form of religion. It's the other side of the coin. You have religion on one side of the coin and you have irreligion on the other side of the coin. But his justification, his redemption still comes from him. And so the first example of a yoke that we are tempted to put ourselves under is not just the same one that Matos Yahoo struggled with, is the same one that, interestingly enough, is the same exact religion that the Pharisees were trying to have as a yoke. So the first yoke is the yoke of religion. It's the most common one, and it's the one that Jesus is exposing here. But here's the thing. It would be foolish for me to say that that's the only yoke. We are so sinful We are so wicked, we are so self-righteous that we figure out new ways of trying to earn it and prove ourselves and make ourselves good enough. Here's what I will tell you. And then I have a quote that I want to read for you. Deep down, what we want, part of the reason why we are restless is because we are looking for righteousness. The the word righteousness means to meet someone's standard, okay? Okay. We, we, we desperately want to be righteous, but because deep down we know we can't live up to that first yoke, which is the yoke of the law, what we do is we settle for pseudo forms of the law, lesser forms of it that are easier to obey, that are easier to carry out. But here's what's so ironic. I heard one pastor put it this way. He said, even if the only yoke that we had on ourselves was the standards that we put on other people, he's like, pretend that you had a tape recorder on your neck. And every time you gave someone a standard, that tape recorder would start recording. And the only standard that you would try to live up to are the standards that you put on other people. Even then, you still wouldn't be able to live up to that standard. Because we are so hypocritical, we can't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. And so what happens is we, we, we get to a place where we get so overwhelmed by the law that, that we know we can't obtain that righteousness. And so we settle with a lower pseudo form of righteousness. And we create 
different yokes and different burdens that when we carry, we feel like we can earn it. We feel like we are credible. We feel like we are good enough. So in his book, The Gospel-Centered Life, author Bob Thune, he, he talks about the different yokes and the different burdens that we turn to in order to find our pseudo forms of righteousness. So it's a longer quote, so bear with me, but hopefully as I read it, you're going to see the different examples of the type of yokes that we put ourselves under. Here's what he says. He says, ask yourself this question. What do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility, validity, acceptance, or good standing? Your answer to that question will often reveal something besides Jesus in which you find your righteousness. When we are not firmly rooted in the gospel, we rely on false sources of righteousness to build our reputation and give us a sense of worth and value. Here are some examples. The first type of righteousness or yoke that we settle for is career righteousness, which is I am a hard worker, so God will reward me. Another one is family righteousness. Because I do things right as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. Another one is theological righteousness. I have good theology. God prefers me over those who have bad theology. Intellectual righteousness. I am better read, more articulate, and more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. Another form of it, another yoke, another burden is schedule righteousness. I am self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. And then in response to the people who have schedule righteousness, you have the flexibility righteousness people. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Then you have mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way everyone else should. Then legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, smoke, or chew. I don't date girls who do. Too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. Three more. Financial righteousness. I manage money wisely and stay out of debt. I'm not like, I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. Political righteousness. If you really love God, you will vote for my candidate. And then lastly, tolerance righteousness. I am open-minded and charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus in that way. So those are all different examples of the yokes and the burdens that we put ourselves under in order to find credibility, in order to find self-righteousness, in order to find pseudo-righteousness, those are the, the, uh, the yokes and the burdens that we put ourselves under. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase burden of proof, right? The burden of proof is on that person or the burden of proof is on that person. These are literal burdens of proof. Like each one of us, when we forget the gospel, either because we never knew it or because we forgot it, we literally walk, away, walk around with burdens of proof. We put these burdens on ourselves because we are desperately trying to prove that we are good enough. We are desperately trying to earn God's favor and God's mercy and God's grace. We all walk around with burdens of proof. So the question that I want to ask you before we move to the next point is this. As you look at your life right now, as you look at today, this week, this month, this year, would you say that you are spiritually restless or spiritually rested? In the passage, Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But if right now it doesn't feel like your yoke is easy and your burden is light, then the question you have to ask yourself is, then what am I actually yoked to if it's not Jesus? So that's the inability to rest. Now, what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to look at the invitation to rest. After Jesus exposes our inability, he makes for us a two-part invitation to rest. The first part of his invitation is he invites us to salvation. 
Then the second part of the invitation is he invites us to sanctification. Now, those are big words, so let me explain what they mean. Salvation means to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Sanctification means to become like Jesus. Okay, so, 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 so salvation means to believe in Jesus positionally. Sanctification means to become like Jesus progressively. Okay, so Jesus gives us a two-part invitation. Salvation, believe in Jesus, and sanctification, become like Jesus. So the first part, the first invitation that Jesus makes is salvation. The first part is salvation. I'm going to read from verse 25 all the way through verse 28. Here's what Jesus says. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. Everybody say, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the first part of the invitation that Jesus is making is he is offering salvation. He is inviting you to salvation. Jesus says, come to me. What I find fascinating about that is how simple it is. Jesus says, come to me. He says, stop your working, stop your laboring, stop your striving, stop your exertion and come to me. Jesus doesn't offer a four part uh, path like Buddhists. He doesn't offer five pillars like the, the Muslims. He doesn't offer 10 steps like postmodernists. No, no. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest because I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what that means is that true rest is not found in possessions. True rest is not found in prominence. It's not found in popularity. It's not found in power. It's not found in position. True rest is found in a person and that person is Jesus Christ. It's the only place where true rest is is found. And then he says, and I love this, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. And we said this already, but it, it needs to be repeated. The word there, rest, in Greek, it literally means to end an argument. It means to command your troops to stop fighting. It means to take off your heavy load and lay it on the ground. It means to cease striving, to cease working, to cease laboring, to cease earning. Jesus says, stop working because I have done the ultimate work. And then he says, I, then he invites. Remember what I said at the beginning? He's inviting everyone, but only certain people will come to him. Because in the previous section that I just reread, he talks about two groups of people. He talks about the people who are wise and learned. And then he talks about little children. So, so here's the thing. You would think that what Jesus is saying, well, let me put it this. Jesus says, the people that won't come to me are the people who are wise and learned. The people who will come to me are the people who are weary and burdened. So if you're wise and learned, you're not going to come to me. But if you are weary and burdened, you are going to come to me. Now, here's the thing. You would think that what Jesus is referring to is intelligence. So you're sitting here, you're thinking, well, I, well, that just explains why I can't come to Jesus because I am wise and I am understanding and I am learned, right? But Jesus isn't talking about uh, intelligence because if he was, the opposite of wise and learned would be stupid, naive, and foolish. But that's not what he says. The opposite is be like little children. So Jesus isn't talking about intelligence. He is talking about dependence. Jesus says, you need to come to me as little children. You have to admit that you are weak. You have to admit that you are insufficient. You have to admit that you are broken. You have to admit that you are blind. You have to admit that you are sick. And then you can receive me. You have to come empty handed in order for me to give you something. But if you just want me to be an extra burden to carry, you don't get it. So here's the question. How do we know that Jesus Christ is making a valid offer? See, the world around us is constantly offering us rest, right? Every commercial, every product, vacation packages are all promising you this rest that you so desperately need. How do we know that Jesus Christ can make this offer and that it's a valid offer? Listen, the reason why we know that Jesus can make this offer is because we are told in verse 25 through 27 that Jesus has been given the authority to make the offer. Why has Jesus been given the authority? Because Jesus had made has made atonement. That's why. 
See, when Jesus talks about restlessness, he's not talking about it like a deity in the sky that's never experienced it. Jesus Christ, by stepping into humanity, he experienced that restlessness. And in the garden in, in particular, and at the cross in particular, Jesus experienced that, that, that restlessness that we partially experience, Jesus fully experienced at the cross. And at the cross, Jesus Christ, when he took our sin, he also took the effects of sin. He also took the consequences of sin, which is the restlessness. And Jesus at the cross, he experienced a cosmic restlessness. He experienced a spiritual restlessness. Why? Because when he took our sin, the father turned his back on him. And so Jesus experienced the full magnitude of our restlessness, the full magnitude of our weariness, the full magnitude of our exhaustion. Jesus experienced that on the cross. He took it from us. He took the restlessness so that by faith in him, he might be able to give us rest. Come on, church. That's beautiful. That's why Jesus has all the authority to make that offer. That's why Jesus and Jesus alone can make that offer. And we know that Jesus can make the offer because when Jesus finished doing the work, we are told in Hebrews that he went up to heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why is that significant? Because we are told in Hebrews that Jesus is both our sacrifice and our high priest. If you know anything about the Old Testament in both the temple and in the tabernacle, there was a bunch of furniture there. There was curtains and there was lampstands and there was tables uh, and there was altars and there was curtains, but the one piece of furniture that was not in the tabernacle or in the temple was a chair. Why? Because the priest could never sit down. The work was never done. Every day, every week, every month, every year, every decade, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, the work was never finished. He couldn't sit down. That's why there wasn't a chair there. But Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he finishes the work. He goes up to heaven and he sits down. Why? Because it's finished. It is finished. He's done. We can rest. Jesus Christ is our true Sabbath rest. The word Sabbath in Hebrew, it literally means to cease working, to cease laboring, to cease striving. Jesus Christ is our true Sabbath rest. Listen, Sabbath is not found in a specific place or in a specific period of time. True Sabbath rest is found in a specific person, and that person is Jesus Christ. The, the, the old, the, the great church Father, St. Augustine, he said, our souls are restless until they find rest in you. Why? Because the first thing Jesus offers is salvation. But the second thing, the second part of his invitation is sanctification. Sanctification. Look, look what it says here. I'm going to reread uh, verse 29 through 30. He says, take my yoke upon you Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So after Jesus offers you, invites you to salvation, to believe in him positionally, then he offers you sanctification to become like him progressively. He says, take my yoke. Here's the thing, guys. The, the, the problem is, is that most Christians, they, 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 accept the first part of the invitation, but not the second part of the invitation. They accept the salvation, but not the sanctification. And so that's why, unfortunately, there are so many Christians that are still restless and that are still weary and they're still exhausted because they accept the salvation, but not the sanctification. They, they want Jesus to be their Lord. They want Jesus to be their savior. They don't want Jesus to be their Lord. They want Jesus to be the, the deliverer of their soul but not the director of their schedule. They want Jesus to take their cross, but not their throne. And so many Christians do the first part, but not the second part. They, they accept the salvation, but not the sanctification. But here's the thing, guys. In order to do this right, you have to accept both. True rest is found only when you accept the, both parts of the, of the invitation. It's the only way it works. Jesus came not just to give you pardon, which is salvation, but to give you purpose, which is sanctification. He came not just to give you deliverance, which is salvation. He came to give you direction, which is sanctification. 
You need both. It's the only way it works. Think about it. When you place your faith in Jesus and you get yoked with Jesus, so it's you and Jesus under a yoke now, he gives you purpose and direction. So it only works if you're going in the same direction as he is. If you accept him as savior, but don't want him as Lord, the reason why you're so restless all the time is because he's going that way and you're going this way. A yoke doesn't work then. It only works if you accept the pardon and the purpose, the, de- the, the deliverance and the direction. That, that's how it works. We have to become students of his. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be a student, to be a learner. He says, take my yoke upon me and learn from me, Jesus says. Become my student. Do life with me. That's where true rest and peace is found. That's how it works. But, but here's the thing. If you're anything like me, it almost feels like a bait and switch, right? Because Jesus is promising you all this rest. He says, give me your yoke and give me your burden. But then he gives you another yoke and another burden. And you're like, what the heck? I don't want any yoke. I don't want a burden. It seems almost like a bait and switch. And then uh, the, the most oxymoron statement I've ever heard ever is when he says, my burden is light. If something is light, it's not a burden. And if it's a burden, it's not light. So how can Jesus' burden be light? How does that work? Well, here's the difference between the yoke and the burden of Jesus and every other yoke and burden. Remember what I told you when we were reading Matthew 24. It says that the Pharisees, they lay on burdens, but then do nothing to lift the burden. They don't lift it. Jesus Christ is better and Jesus Christ gives you a light burden because Jesus Christ is under the yoke with you. He's carrying the yoke. So I don't know what yoke you're carrying. I don't know if it's your marriage or your job or, or, your, or your family life. I don't know what yoke you're carrying, but I need you to know that when you place your faith in Jesus, Jesus is under the yoke with you. He's carrying the yoke. He's carrying most of the yoke. It's on him. It's not on you. He's with you. He doesn't just lift a finger. He lifted a cross and died for your sin. And if Jesus was faithful with the greater yoke, with the greater burden, which is sin and death, then what makes us doubt him in the smaller yokes, in the smaller burdens? Come on, church. That's what we see. Listen, true rest is not found in a lack of a yoke because we just discovered that's not a thing. Everyone has a yoke. True rest is not found in the lack of a yoke. It's found in having the right yoke. You put on the right yoke and all of a sudden Jesus gives you pardon and purpose, deliverance and direction. And that's where true rest comes from. You know what happens when you do that? When you understand that you're already loved and accepted and approved, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done, you start to walk at a different pace. See, some of us walk at a frantic pace. Some of us walk at an anxious pace. Some of us walk at a busy pace. When you understand the gospel, you start to walk at a grace pace. Have you ever thought of that? Walking at the pace of grace, understanding that you're already loved, already accepted, already approved of because of what Jesus did and not because of what you do. All of a sudden you realize that the yoke is no longer a yoke of burden, but of blessing. It's no longer a yoke of duty, but of delight. It's no longer a yoke of guilt, but of grace. And that changes everything. Listen, to the degree that you believe in Jesus, salvation, to that same degree you will become like Jesus, sanctification. And to the degree that you are able to admit your inability to rest, to that same degree you will be able to accept his invitation to rest. Amen? Hey, listen, if you're sitting here today and... Uh, You've been carrying that burden. I'm not sure what yoke you've had on you. I'm not sure what burden you've had on you. But you're sitting here today and you're like, I want to experience this rest. The Bible says that when we confess with our mouth and believe with our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, we can come to him and we go from being literally from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And our burden is taken off. He takes our burden. He takes our yoke to the cross. He dies for it. And then all of a sudden we get, instead of restlessness, we get rest, we get peace. That's what Jesus offers you today. And so my prayer is that today would be the day that you place your faith in Jesus. If that's what you wanna do, all you have to do is right there in your home, pause the stream and pray, say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I want you to be the Lord and savior of my life. I want to accept your salvation, but I also wanna accept your sanctification. I wanna believe in you, but I also wanna become like you. Be my Lord, be my savior. Be my deliverer, be my director. 
take my cross and take my throne. Today can be the day. If that's you, we would love for you to text the word high point to the number 97000. Now for everyone who's at church at home, um, in, a, in a few minutes here, we're gonna have the questions come up. Uh, but before we do that, um, I wanna call Pastor Josh to come up with me. So this morning we have been talking about rest, the rest that is given to us in the gospel. And many of you know this handsome gentleman here next to me, way better looking than I am. And when I got here back in October, I got to know Josh pretty early on, obviously, in the process. And one of the things that I discovered that was crazy to me is that Josh has already been on staff for 11 years. And 11 years is a long time, no matter what. But 11 years at High Point is like dog years. Okay, let's be honest, all right? And so when I got here, I thought, man, I think that it might be time for Josh to take a sabbatical. You know, there's a new lead pastor here. Things are getting kind of situated. And so I brought it up to him several months ago. And we started praying and we started processing. And over time, we felt like, you know what? This is the time. This summer gives us the opportunity to do just that. So Pastor Josh is going to be taking a much needed sabbatical. And what that sabbatical is going to do, it's going to give him physical rest. It's going to give him mental rest. It's going to give him emotional rest. And praise be to God, the gospel's already given him spiritual rest. And so an opportunity for him to be refreshed and be rested and be rejuvenated to come back and do the work that God's calling him to do here. So in light of all that, here's what I would love for you to do. Um, Over the next six weeks, which is how long his sabbatical will be, um, I want you to be praying for him. I want you to leave him alone. (laughs) Don't text him. Don't message him. Leave him alone, please. But please pray for him so that he can live in light of the rest that Jesus won for him at the cross, that he would experience vertical rest so that he can then experience horizontal rest. So in light of that, let me pray for him and for us now. Father God, I wanna thank you so much for today. I wanna thank you, Lord, for Matthew 11, 25 through 30. I thank you for the work that you've done. I thank you, Lord, that because of the gospel, Christians have the unique ability to rest at every level, not just physically, not just mentally, not just emotionally, but spiritually. And Lord, I pray that right now over Josh. God, I thank you for the the work that he's done. I thank you for all the things that you've allowed him to do in this place. But Lord, we thank you that because of the gospel, he can also rest. He can rest not just spiritually, but he can physically take a break because you promised that you are the one who will build your church. That's not ultimately my job or his job. It's your job. And so, Lord, I pray that this would be a time of refreshment for him and his wife, Stacy. I pray that they would be able to get away and that they would be able to just be reminded again that the work is finished and that they're already loved and already accepted and already approved of. So, Lord, I pray for him now. Lead him, guide him, and I look forward to hearing all the stories about all the things that you teach him over the next six weeks. Lord, I pray that I wouldn't be the only one that's praying for him, but that our whole church would be lifting him up in prayer during this time. And Lord, now I I pray for uh, the rest of today. I pray for the conversations that are about to be had. And we pray that it would all happen for your honor and for your glory. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name.